Um, we're going to get started with this message. The passage that I would like to call your attention to this morning is Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verse one, verses 1 through 9. Um, great passage of scripture. Uh, didn't seem like we were in chapter 8 very long, right? Just a couple of sermons. Boy, we were in 7 for... I thought the Lord came back and left us. I don't know what happened, but we were in that chapter for, I don't know, six or seven weeks, maybe more, but eight went by in a breeze, and then now we're entering into chapter nine. Last week, we were given this blessed opportunity to read from the text to witness the salvation of this sort of docile, seemingly docile, friendly Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, my wife is hilarious. She said, you know, you were really getting into that sermon and walking and moving and acting it out. It was like you were a one-man play, and I thought, what an idiot. (laughs) Not her, me, right? Why would you say such a thing? No, I was thinking, what an idiot. What was I doing, you know, And, and just, you know, it was like cats up here, right, you know, and uh and then, I, and then I came to realize that the entire text that we were studying was about a man who had been saved. And I just get excited about that when I, when I think about God saving people. Now, the week before, we were talking about Simon the Magician, and things were quite different with him, so I was very stoic and, oh, you know. But man, when we're talking about the Lord saving people and, and, and being able to see that through the Scripture, shouldn't that just encourage our hearts and float our boats and give us energy and passion and juice and love for him. And it just should get us excited, right? I mean, that's what the gospel does for me. It just gets me pumped up. And when I see it impact someone's life, it's, I do weird things, you know? I, I dance. I don't know what I was doing up here, but, but that's, I think, why. Okay, babe? Give, give a brother some grace. Give the husband some grace. So we did get to see this marvelous example, and and I acted it out, and it was weird, but it was really cool to see this man get saved. Now, this morning, we will witness the salvation of a rather unsavory character. Last week was Ethiopian eunuch. Come aboard into my chariot, young Philip. You know, just this nice, seemingly nice, kind-hearted guy, very open, very cool. And this morning, we're really getting an antithesis example of that. We're going to see an unsavory character um, saved by the Lord. We're going to get to witness that. And this particular man was one who relentlessly uh, persecuted, pursued the Christian church. Uh, I mean, just, you know, just a, a terrorist, for lack of better title or words, towards the church during his day. But by the grace of God, became the greatest servant, the greatest apostle, the greatest theologian the church ever produced. What a marvelous thing we have before us. Again, please turn over to Acts 9, 1 to 9. I'll read it. We can read it together and uh, pray and begin to examine and apply it. Good stuff? You guys ready? title, uh, The Conversion of Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then it says in 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. The last verse, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Graciously, Heavenly Father, we call upon you now. Open our hearts and minds to your truth, God. May we see this tremendous example that is laden in this scripture of your completely amazing, your complete and amazing sovereign grace, Lord. That is really the theme of this text, your sovereign grace. May we see it clearly today. May we understand it. May we believe it. May we be changed by it. God, we all have views of the scripture and theologies and these things that have been built and constructed over time through various teachers and things that we've read, things that we've heard. And as I've noticed this week, Lord, that, that sometimes you swing a demolition ball against our understanding, against what we've been taught, against what we believe, Lord. It's a painful thing. It's a confusing thing. It's a frustrating thing, Lord. But you do it by your sheer grace because you want your children to know the truth. And so may we sit here and humbly listen to you. You are our teacher today, Jesus. May we submit to you humbly. May we submit to the teaching of your word. May we be changed and transformed by it and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time, Lord Jesus. Protect our hearts and minds. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we'll begin, my friends, by looking at verse 1 and 2. Hopefully you were able to grab a note sheet or outline or whatever you want to call it, and you're ready to take some notes. And some of you guys are just tremendous note takers. You take more notes than I have sermon pages. It's just crazy and cool. And the thing is, is that God teaches me some things, and I record them through this whole process of study, but he's teaching you what he taught me, and then he's giving you more while you're out there, you're out there and listen. I just don't think it's fair. It's a cool thing. So get your stuff ready to go. Let's do this. One and two will begin. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest to and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound, (laughs) shackled, chained to Jerusalem. While Philip was preaching the gospel at Azotos, that's where we saw him get whisked away to by the Spirit last week, while he was preaching the gospel in this Philistine uh, community of Zotos, the city, and while Peter and John were in Jerusalem caring for the Jerusalem church, which had undoubtedly gone underground, right, because of this extraordinary persecution uh, that was really centered in this area of Jerusalem. The church had definitely gone underground. Ground, But while Peter was preaching in this place and the apostles were back uh, ministering to the church that had gone underground, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against believers. Um, He wasn't satisfied with the fact that he and his cronies had driven the church out of Jerusalem. It, It wasn't enough for him. His zeal drove him to the point of wanting to go after Christians as they fled as well. Now Saul truly believed that God had given him this particular mission, this mission to stamp out and purge Judaism of this, what he saw as a deadly cancer that had been brought about by Jesus of Nazareth. Saul may have imagined himself to be like Moses or like Phineas, who had both attempted to purge Israel of false religion and evil during their day. When Moses learned that many Israelite men had yoked themselves to Midianite women and started worshiping their God, you know, they started yoking themselves and and becoming sort of one with these foreign women, and then that ultimately led to this worship of their god, Baal of Peor. Um, What happened was Moses began to round up all of these men and their new wives or, you know, the women, girlfriends, whatever you want to call them. He began to round them up and put them to death. Numbers 25, 1 to 5. After the massacre of all these men and their women... Um, while the congregation was gathered and mourning the loss of these loved ones, these men and these folks, an Israelite man actually walked by them in the presence of all them and sort of paraded across, walked by them with a Midianite woman on his hip. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he chased them into their chamber, and he threw it at them, and it went right through her belly and through him, and it kind of made a shish kebab out of them. Numbers 25, 7 to 8. Moses and Phinehas were very zealous to keep evil and these foreign influences out of the assembly, I suspect that Paul may have seen himself, or Saul, I should say, should have seen himself, uh, maybe saw himself in the same way. And interestingly, rabbinic teaching stated that the keeping of the Mosaic law was a vitally important prerequisite 
for the coming of the messianic age. Rabbis taught that if the Jews, if the Jewish people could all obey the law together and sort of hold that line that God would bless them with the coming of their deliverer. Now this is probably why the Pharisees went around policing the people the way that they did. Why they went around and and chased after Jesus and questioned everything that he did. They may have, the Pharisees may have felt that it was their job to get everyone on board, all of the Jews on board in obedience so that they could in unison obey the Messiah together and obey him right into coming. This is one of the reasons why the Sanhedrin went after men like Jesus, the apostles and and Stephen. The Sanhedrin thought that these men were leading the people away into disobedience against the Mosaic law, and that, of course, would delay their deliverance. How backwards did these people have it? And how arrogant was it for them to presume, to believe that their obedience and earned righteousness could persuade God to take action and to send their deliverer. Now, during his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked the scribes of the Pharisees for this line of thinking, and this line of thinking was, um, it just infected the Jewish minds. Um, It was a very pervasive sort of philosophy of thinking. We've got to earn our way. We've got to earn our way. And if we can all align ourselves, then God will take action. Now, Jesus pretty much set them straight at one occasion on several, but one in particular. He rebuked that line of thinking in Mark 2.16 The scribes of the Pharisees criticized Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors. You've probably read the story. It's a great story. In verse 17 of chapter 2 of Mark, Jesus said this. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And they said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These are Jesus' words. With this saying, Jesus exploded their tradition and bad theology. He essentially said, I did not come to call the righteous. When he said this, I did not come to call the righteous, it was basically equivalent to saying, your righteousness had nothing to do with me coming. You know, the scribes must have thought to themselves, wait a minute, we didn't earn your passage into our world. They must have been thinking this. This is important, must have flooded their minds, or impossible, I should say. This is impossible, this is impossible. They believed that if the Messiah, if Jesus was the true Messiah, that he would know that he had come because of their collaborative effort, because of their righteousness. And Jesus says, You didn't bring me down with your acts of righteousness. You didn't bring me down with your obedience to the Mosaic law. I came not for the righteous, not for those who believe they're righteous, not for those who try to earn their way. I came down for those who know they can't, for sinners, the lost, the sick. Those are the ones that need the great physician. So he basically exploded this ideology. Now, This way of thinking, this traditional sort of view of earning God to come, it infected Saul's mind and understanding. And that is primarily why he tried to stamp out Christianity. 
Christianity to him was a cancer. It caused a delay in their redemption because all of these Jews were flooding to it. So many people, especially at Pentecost and shortly after that, were hearing the gospel proclaimed by Peter and the Jews were coming to Jesus in droves. And every time one came to Jesus, Saul would see that as a delay in their progress, a delay in their obedience, a delay in the Messiah coming. This is what drove him. Yes, he loved Judaism. Yes, he loved his piety. Um, Before Christ, he was an extraordinarily prideful man. But for the most part, he saw Christianity as a means to delay the coming Messiah. And this is why he went after it in such a crazy manner. After nabbing and jailing every believer he could find in Jerusalem, he went to the Sanhedrin and asked for official documents that would allow him to enter foreign synagogues to arrest and extradite the Christians who were scattered. Sanhedrin still exercised authority over local and over the local and foreign synagogues. Rome When Rome came in, Rome maintained their right to do so. Rome didn't want to manage their religion. They let the Sanhedrin continue to do it, although they monitored it and policed it. But the Sanhedrin's oversight, their rule and authority, extended throughout the Roman Empire because there were synagogues in all of these different cities and different provinces and and these places. And so wherever there was a synagogue in a Roman province or part of the Roman Empire, basically the Sanhedrin had governing authority over it. They could take action against that synagogue, against that rabbi. They could do whatever they wanted to do. They were in charge. Now Saul heard that some of the believers had fled north to Damascus. Damascus was an ancient city that dated back to the time of Abraham. In the days of the divided monarchy of Israel and Judah, Damascus was the capital of a a very powerful Aramean kingdom, which was overthrown by the Assyrians in 732 B.C. Um, Since 64 B.C., before Christ, it had formed part of the Roman province of Syria. Damascus had a very large population of Jews with many synagogues. History affirms this because Josephus recorded that some 10 to 20,000 Jews were massacred in Damascus during the Jewish-Roman hostilities of 66 AD. That's a lot of Jews that were killed. How many Jews were probably there? If that number was killed, there may have been 100,000 or something like that. We, We don't know. So Saul went to the Sanhedrin and obtained necessary documents or warrants to make arrests in that particular area, in that Roman province. And once he arrived at Damascus, he would begin to visit these synagogues and sort of systematically, and he would go to the rabbis, those in charge, and he would hand out these arrest warrants And the rabbis would be required by the order of the Sanhedrin, by the, um, these documents were official by them, they would have been required to turn over any and all Christians. Now, a good question arises at this point, at least in my mind. Why would Saul look for believers at Jewish synagogues? They're Jewish synagogues, right? Why wouldn't he go into the 
Christian churches? Why wouldn't he be determined to go into these homes and all these things? I'm not saying that he didn't go into those places, but he basically targets Jewish synagogues. Why is that? Well, prior to the great persecution and scattering of all the believers, the believers regularly visited Jewish places of worship. They went there to preach the gospel, as we saw with Stephen, right? Stephen went into those Hellenistic synagogues. You know, I would imagine that you could very often find some Christian person in a synagogue and proclaiming Jesus Christ. And so it could be that. Um, it, it could be also that uh, uh, the fact that the early church really assembled in synagogues for worship before they established their own churches or before they actually started doing the home church idea. A lot of times you would find Christians worshiping Jesus right alongside of Jews in their synagogues worshiping God. It was a pretty common thing. And so it makes sense that Saul would go up and go to these synagogues. There's a good chance that some Christian had gone into these places and talked about Jesus and the gospel. There's a good chance that he would find in these synagogues people worshiping, Christians worshiping right alongside the Jews. I mean, these synagogues were the only places that had the Old Testament. It wasn't a common thing. There was no printing press. People didn't have Bibles or their own personal scrolls of the Old Testament. You could find it in the synagogue. If a Christian wanted to hear the word of God read and maybe explained, that would be where they would go, especially if they were scattered and hadn't organized anything yet. So it makes a lot of sense that he would go to these synagogues. Also, at this particular time, those who followed Jesus Christ were called the way. We see that in the text, rather than Christians. The title Christian came about later um, in the city of Antioch. A church was planted there, and they penned that title. I like what Richard Loggenecker wrote, and I, I often will quote the guys who write the commentaries that I study from, but he wrote this. Before being named at Syrian Antioch and during the early existence of the church, those who accepted Jesus' messiahship and claimed him as their Lord called themselves those of the way, while their opponents spoke of them as members of the sect of the Nazarenes, that was a derogatory term for Christians, for the way, the origin of the absolute use of the way for Christians is uncertain though it surely had something to do with the early believers' consciousness of walking in the true path of God's salvation and moving forward to accomplish his purposes. F.F. Bruce wrote, The way was evidently a term the early Christians used to denote their own movement, considered as a way of life or the way of of salvation. Some say that since Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life, some people said, well, he's the way, he's the way unto salvation, he's the way that we should live, he's our life, we should call ourselves the way, because Jesus called himself the way. There's a lot of different reasons out there for the church calling itself that, we're not sure why, but I think that it was a title used to describe the way that they lived, which was vastly different from the way that other people lived, the Jews, and worshipped, and all that stuff. Notice how Saul asked the Sanhedrin for clearance to arrest both men and women. 
As I said several weeks ago, women were nearly never arrested and put into prison, um, especially for religious reasons, purposes. Jewish prisons were filled with guys. But Saul was too zealous against the church for the cause of God in his mind to leave out the gals. He believed that all followers of Jesus everywhere were a hindrance and threat and needed to be dealt with. Therefore, he went and got these papers to be able to arrest both. He had no problem with arresting women, the gals. Very interesting. Look at 3 to 5. Luke wrote that after Saul obtained the legal documents, he set out on the 150-mile journey north to Damascus. As he, pretty far, especially if you were on foot or on horse or donkey back. As he approached the city, he was surrounded, it says, by light from heaven. Let's talk about light for a moment. I've got some examples here of light Uh, Old Testament examples and New Testament examples, and I pulled these from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary. Old Testament examples. Light was the first thing God created after the heavens and earth. Let there be light, he said. And then everything else proceeded from there. Genesis 1-3. God also made light as a natural symbol for what is pleasant, good, or uplifting, or what is associated with important people, or more especially with God, Ecclesiastes 11.7. God used light to guide, protect, and assure the Israelites of his presence during the Exodus. We see that in Exodus 13.21, Exodus 14.20, Nehemiah 9.19, Psalm 78.14, Psalm 105.19. 39. I know I'm rambling off verses. You can't possibly write them all down, but the transcripts are online, so you can get them if you want the references. I just think it's valuable to mention them so you know that I'm not making this stuff up. Light symbolizes the blessing of the Lord, Job 12, 2-2. Light is closely linked with God. God can be said to be light, Isaiah 60 19 to 20, Psalm 27, 1, Micah 7, 8 to 9. God is said to be robed with light, Psalm 104, 2, and light dwells in him, Daniel 2, 22. Light is associated with God's justice, that's very interesting, Isaiah 51, 4, Proverbs 4, 18. The Old Testament uses the absence of light as a synonym for disaster. Job 12.25, Job 18.5-18, Lamentations 3.2. These are all really interesting examples of light, Old Testament. New Testament examples, I have a few. The Apostle John wrote that God is light and there is no darkness in him. 1 John 1.5. John the Baptist came to bear witness to what? To the light for the purpose of bringing people um, to believe. John 1, 7 to 8. Those who received Jesus, who believed in the light, received the right to become what? Children of God. John 1, 9 to 12. Sometimes light is used to express the illumination that happens when people come 
to the knowledge of God and his salvation. Uh, we see that in Matthew 4.16, Luke 2.32, Acts 13.47, Acts 26.18. Jesus said what? I am the light of the world, he said, John 8.12. And I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, 12. 46 of John, Jesus told his followers to believe in the light while it was with them, John 12, 35 to 36. Lastly, he who follows Jesus will have what? The light of life. I love that, John 8, 12. These are some examples of light from the scriptures, and I think that they support where we're going here. Now, what light surrounded Saul. Keener wrote that it was the Shekinah, which is the glory of God's presence, the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah light that surrounded him. MacArthur affirms this and adds to it. He wrote, confronted with the appearance of the blazing glory of Jesus Christ, Saul, the hardened persecutor, hardened persecutor's persecutor of Christians, was speechless with terror. Luke's other accounts of this event, Acts 22 and in Acts 26, fill in more of the details. From Acts 22.6, we learn that, they, that they encount, the encounter actually took place at noon. And then he says this, the light from heaven was not anything from material creation since it transcended in brilliance even the bright Middle Eastern sun, Acts 26.13. Our text says this was light from heaven. Heaven distinguishes that it was from somewhere else, from God. It was an expression, a pouring out of, an example of, a manifestation of his Shekinah glory. Verse 4 shows that as soon as the light enveloped Saul... He began to prostrate himself, which means to lay down flat on the ground on his belly. The light was so brilliant and unique that he immediately recognized it as being foreign and beyond nature. Saul also knew that there was a good chance that the voice of God would follow the light. Okay, He had probably learned this from the creation account. After God declared there to be light, God spoke everything else into existence. Therefore, the Jews commonly held the view that if you saw the Shekinah light, this bright, out-of-the-ordinary light, you could nearly expect, almost always expect, to hear the voice of God. And sure enough, as Saul was face-planting himself, he heard a voice. And what did that voice from heaven say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was perplexed. He thought to himself, there is no other explanation for this light. It's too bright to be nature. It, it has to be the light from heaven or light from heaven. And then he hears this voice. He's thinking to himself, he, hears this, he sees the light and he hears the voice of God and he has to say to himself, what does he mean by persecuting him? How could I be persecuting God is what flooded his mind. 
light of voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's got to be thinking immediately, I know this is from heaven, the voice, the light. What does he mean by this? How could I, Saul, possibly be persecuting God? The idea of persecuting God was unconscionable to Saul. He believed with all his heart and mind that he was serving God. During the days that preceded this miraculous event, he had been extraordinarily successful at rooting out and imprisoning members of the way in Jerusalem. Wow, all of this ministry for him, his ministry success, he was successful at driving these Christians out. And then basically what happens next is that his, he comes up with an idea to have some Syrian mission and then he goes to the Sanhedrin. They not only approve it, they sanction it. These things, the success of driving out the Christians, persecuting them, and then the Sanhedrin stamp of approval basically served to affirm that he was on the right path with God in his mind and heart. While brimming with pride, self-confidence, and certainty, the voice from heaven boomed in his ears and heart. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was perplexed, and then fear began to come over him, and his life And ministry flashed before his eyes. He could see Stephen in his mind's eye being stoned to death. He could see the terror-stricken faces of those members of the way whom he had chased, beaten, and imprisoned. He must have thought to himself, Oh, God, say it isn't so. Persecuting you? Are you saying that I've been persecuting you by what I've been doing? To the church, the Christian church, to the way? Oh, say it isn't so. Please. Notice the repetition of the text, Saul, Saul. The repetition is emphatic, as elsewhere in Luke's writings. Here it marks a rebuke of Saul, intended to bring anguish of soul So Saul would realize how wrong he had been and guilt would overwhelm him. He was the one who had hated Jesus Christ without cause. John 15, 25. Our Lord's words, why are you persecuting me? Literally, and for us, what a blessing this is, they reflect the inseparable link between Jesus himself as the head of the body and its members. No blow struck on earth goes unfelt in heaven by our sympathetic high priest. By persecuting Christians, Saul inflicted blows directly on the Lord. MacArthur wrote, Saul, who had been so violent, was violently brought face to face with the enormity of his crimes, not against Christians, but against Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me is equivalent to saying, Saul, Saul, you are wrong. Same thing. Huh? Light, belly down. Saul, Saul, you are wrong. What? I'm wrong? It is equivalent to that. Now, Saul had heard the gospel from Stephen and maybe others. 
now he was being crushed into the dust and made to believe it. While lying on his pile of religious rubble, he answered, Who are you? Or he asked, I should say, Who are you, Lord? Saul knew, we must be clear on this, he knew that he was speaking to deity. He knew it was the Lord. The whole Christian gospel filled his mind negatively all the time as he pursued his passion of persecuting believers. It's not hard to believe that he already knew the answer to this question as he asked it. If not by faith, then by fear. His worst imaginable nightmare would have been to discover that Jesus was the Messiah. To discover that the way or Christianity was true. That the gospel was God's truth. And had he had been fighting against God this whole time, I mean, this would have been a disaster for him to realize this in this moment. It was the worst imaginable thing. He knew what he had done to the church. And now, <laughs> he's being questioned on it. When Saul heard the words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, When he heard these words, where did I put it? When Saul heard the words, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, the light was confirmed in his soul and the gospel became positive. The Christian message he knew well, having debated it with Stephen. Jesus, whom he had believed dead, was obviously alive and obviously who he claimed to be. Saul's resistance was crushed at that moment and his heart broken by repentance. His heart that had been broken by repentance was healed by faith. Now, incredibly, people have foolishly attempted to explain away this experience, Saul's experience. Some say that he had an epileptic seizure. And that's why he fell to the ground and was blinded for three days. <laughs> this would usually be, it would be the camp that, that denies the miraculous and the miracles and all of that. And I can't believe I can say this accurately, but there's a huge contingency of Christians that do this. The Jesus Seminar and these other groups of so-called Christians, they deny the miraculous and these sorts of things. And so they're the ones that come up with this stuff and try to explain it away. What happened? He fell down on the ground. He was tweaking out. He had an epileptic seizure, and that's why he hit the ground, and that's why he was blind for three days. That's actually what happened. There's no such thing as miracles. Some say that Saul was a seeker. <laughs> it comes from the seeker-sensitive movement. As a seeker, he was questioning his motives against the church while on the Damascus road. And when the light and voice came from heaven, he was already a broken mess and ready to repent. And this is violence against the very word of God, these ideas. That we're to see Saul as someone who began to ponder his actions and as he rode on a donkey began to think, I think I've been wrong this whole time. What, have I, what was I thinking? And then the light and voice comes, and I knew it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for confirming what I was already starting to feel, what I was already starting to expect. 
that he was a seeker seeking after Jesus Christ. How preposterous is this? Epilepsy? We have no record of him ever showing any epileptic seizures anywhere in Scripture. If there is one, it's this one and this one alone. Boy, he wrote half the New Testament. You'd think that he'd be writing all of a sudden, you know, and then come back. Right? What's this space right here? I don't understand. He had an epileptic seizure right there, and then he came back to us three days later. But he couldn't write because he was blind. It's just amazing the stuff that, that people cook up to explain away the truth. May I submit to you that what we have seen here is an example of God's sovereign grace. Think about these things for a moment. The narrative, the story, the context of, confirms these things. Saul was an enemy of Jesus and his church. Saul was on a mission to bring the church to an end. Saul was not seeking to know Jesus. He was seeking to eliminate his people and name. Saul had no intention of believing in Jesus whatsoever. Saul was unregenerated and completely dead in sin, a spiritual corpse. Saul was in spiritual darkness, blinded to the true ways of God and blind to the gospel. Saul had no measure of faith, no measure of grace to begin with. There was nothing inside Saul that would cause, incline, or persuade him to believe. Saul had no ability whatsoever to exercise faith or to respond to God's grace on his own. Does not the story show us that so very clearly? All of these things have been made perfectly clear by the scriptures. Saul was helpless, hopeless, and on the broad road. And then God sovereignly intervened. God saved him. God illuminated his heart and mind to the truth. And the spirit of God quickened his spirit, bringing it to life. God gave him faith to believe what he had heard from Stephen and others and what he was actually hearing right then in that very moment. How did Saul respond in brokenness and repentance? He was devastated when he learned that he had been opposing God he was devastated when he found out that Jesus is alive and Israel's true Messiah. And I'm completely convinced that if God had not intervened and saved Saul, Saul would have went into Damascus and done what he thought he was supposed to do and he would have kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And unless God had intervened at some other point in time, he would have perished and went into everlasting damnation and destruction. It's so clear. May I submit to you that all men are like Saul. Depraved, blind, faithless, helpless, hopeless, in opposition to God, spiritually dead, and that unless God intervenes, they will perish the good news is, is that God does 
intervene today, just as he did in Saul's day. God uses the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, applied by his spirit to snatch men from the broad road. God saves Saul's every day in our world. And this is why the church preaches the gospel. And this is why the church prays that the Holy Spirit would illuminate men's hearts and quicken their dead spirits, bringing them to life. You see, we realize that men are absolutely helpless and hopeless and not inclined to God. They're an enemy, and their only hope is for God to intervene. And the thing that's the greatest, the greater mystery and miracle to me is that God intervenes at all. Not that it's his choice to intervene. That's a mystery and that's challenging, but that he does it at all. Do you not know yourself? Do you not know your own thoughts and your own motives, your own sin, your own depravity? Even as a saved person, you wrestle with these things every day. The greatest question that you can ask is not why does God choose to save and intervene, and apparently he doesn't do it with everyone because not everyone gets saved. The better question is to ask why does he do it at all? You have people who were created in his image, image bearers who have done nothing but malign and tarnish and distort his image nearly since the beginning. It is a miracle that he saves anyone. He is owing to no one. And yet we walk this earth and believe that we're entitled to something from him, that he must save all. He has to. The greater question is that he saves anyone. Why? Why would you save me? I know me. Why would you save her? I know her. What? What? The fact that you would intervene, that's a reality that he does that. It's a mystery. This is why the church preaches the gospel. We don't know who God is going to save. We, they don't walk around with an S on their shirt. Someday he's going to get it. We have no clue. In fact, we spend most of our time walking around going, there's no way that that person can be saved. There's no way that that person can be saved. I, I'll make sure that person who jacked me up will never get saved. We spend all our time playing that game. We have no idea who God has chosen to save. We're just called to be faithful to the ministry of the word, to proclaim the gospel, to pray that the Holy Spirit would take that word of God and apply it and illuminate and transfer men from darkness to light. That's why we do what we do. We have a desire to see everyone that we come across be saved. That's a good holy desire. The church will continue to do these things, preach the gospel and pray the Holy Spirit until the Lord returns. This could be sooner than later. Now, according to Acts 22.10, Saul asked Jesus a second question after the Lord declared who he was. Um, we don't see it in our text, but there's more detail and stuff throughout the book of Acts. His question shows the genuineness of his conversion. In Acts 22.10, Saul said this, What shall I do, Lord? 
This was a submissive response. Saul, interestingly, miraculously, incredibly, Saul, who had hated Jesus and his church moments earlier, now asked Jesus, how can I humbly serve you? <laughs> I'm going to kill Christians. How can I serve you? I'm thinking that if we would have understood bipolarism, we would have said he wasn't an epileptic and he wasn't a seeker. He was bipolar. One minute hot, one minute cold. I'm going to go into this town. There's the gates. I can see it. Yes. How can I serve you? I don't think it was that quick. But it seems like it, right? When we look at the scripture, it's like, what the heck? And funny, you look down the road a little bit. He's going into synagogues, right? He's going throughout Jerusalem to persecute and capture Christians. Next thing you know, he's preaching in them. Can you imagine the Christians when they were in the synagogues and he came in? Oh, my gosh, there he is. I came to preach the gospel. What the heck is going on here? What's this guy doing? I don't believe him. I don't trust him. That's incredible. He says, what shall I do, Lord? This is an act of submission. How may I humbly serve you? Wow. Look at how the Lord replied to him. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul was given a new assignment. No more Christian hunting. No more terrorizing the way. Instead, he was to get up, dust himself off, go into the city, pass through those glorious city gates, and then he was just to wait to find out what he was to do next when he met up with somebody. Under different circumstances, he entered the city. Amen? I bet you he was going to be a terrorizer there, wasn't he? And he comes in and, wow, what a difference. Incredible. He was to wait for instructions. Look at seven. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. They thought to themselves, he must be an epileptic. He must be a seeker. He must be bipolar. I added those things in the little parentheses right there under the text. No, Luke added this little nuance to safeguard against those who would try to explain away Saul's experience. The men that Saul brought with him witnessed pretty much everything. They saw the light and they heard a voice. According to Acts 9, 17, 9, 27, 22, 14, 26, 16... 1 Corinthians 9.1 and 1 Corinthians 15.8, Saul didn't just see light. Saul saw the Lord Jesus in glorious brilliance amidst the heavenly light. He saw Jesus. The last person to see Jesus was who as he was about to be murdered and martyred and as the stones were crushing out his life. Stephen, as he gazed into heaven, he saw the Lord rise from his throne and here, Saul was face to face with Jesus, glorious Jesus. Now, his co-persecutors saw only the light. And the voice they heard wasn't understandable to them, only to Saul. So they saw the light, they heard, you know, they heard Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, wah, wah. they heard... They couldn't discern what it was. They couldn't decipher it. It didn't make sense to them. Some say that it was the Aramaic tongue that was spoken, and, but I think those guys might have understood that. But for whatever reason, the Lord appeared and spoke in, a, in a, an understandable way only to Saul. That was it. But why didn't he do it for the other guys that were there? 
I don't know, but they were witnesses to it, so we certainly can't generate all these little mysteries and these little false teachings. There were people there that saw this thing play out. Look at 8 to 9. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, last verse, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. First thing we see is that Saul obeyed. He got up, but then he realized after the light had dissipated, disappeared, and after the appearance of the Lord went away, he realized that he couldn't see. Why was Saul blind? What caused his blindness? According to the Old Testament, God sometimes struck people with blindness to stop them from an evil purpose, like in the case of the wicked men of Sodom who tried to do perverted things to the angels who had come to destroy that town, Genesis 19.11. Saul was definitely on his way to do destructive things, was he not? God also blinds or used blindness as a temporary measure to get people's attention, 2 Kings 6.18-20. Longenecker suspects that Saul's blindness was caused by some physiological failure that his body or system reacted to the emotional shock of what he had done in such a traumatic way to learn that he had been wrong and opposed the Lord, an enemy, and, and harming the Lord by harming the Lord's people, that it was so traumatic to his physical body that he became blind for three days. That's pretty interesting could be that the Lord's glorious appearance blinded him, but then I'm reminded of the transfiguration and those men, Peter and John and I think James, came down off the mountain. They weren't blind, but maybe, maybe it was the appearance of the Lord that blinded him. I think that the fact that he was blind for three days is very significant, may play into this and give meaning. If you look ahead to verse or verses 17 to 18, you will see that three days later Saul received back his sight, was baptized, and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about this. How long was Jesus in the tomb? Three days. What did Jesus do on the third day? He rose from the dead. How did Jesus rise from the dead? By the power of the Holy Spirit. With that said, listen to R.B. Rackham's insight here. It's very, very good. It's awesome. He wrote... Saul is crucified with Christ, and the three days of darkness are like the three days in the tomb. But on the third day with Christ, he rises from the dead in baptism. After this, he is filled with the Holy Ghost, his Pentecost. I like that explanation the best. That is just amazing. That should have been our quote for this week in our bulletin. The text also says that Saul neither ate nor drank for three days. I think that he may have been fasting and praying. There's all sorts of different views on that. Three days was not uncommon for a fast, although it could be dangerous to go without water that long. Fasting was often associated with mourning and repentance. It could be that Saul put aside food and water while he, or as he tearfully pondered his choices. As he pondered his future, the man was blind. He wasn't certain as to what was going to happen. 
could be that you just put those things aside to mourn, to weep in repentance with a broken heart over what he had done. I don't think that Saul ever fully let go of what he had done. He mentioned his sin against the Lord, this persecution, these things. He mentioned them in other places in the scripture, like in Acts 22.4, Philippians 3.6. I think if, you, if we had the privilege of asking Saul, who became Paul today, what the greatest blemish of his entire life was, he would say, it's what I did to the church before I was saved. This man was deeply bothered by what he had done. It broke him. As his love for the Lord began to grow by the grace and mercy of God, I can't imagine how much more intense his feelings must have been against his former self. Obviously, he rested in the grace of God. He'd been saved. And Paul is a writer of victory. Read his epistles. But at the same time, it bothered him what he had done. He never fully left his past behind in that what I did. He hated it about himself. He couldn't stand it. Now, as we close this time of teaching, as we wrap it up, I'd like to caution us all. Every day, we are tempted to write people off. We meet them. Or we see them out in the world and we think to ourselves, look at what they're doing. What evil. We think to ourselves, there is no way that this person or that person would ever come to know Christ. If we were to see someone in the world, and they're probably out there, maybe we just don't see them, but if we were to see someone persecuting our brothers and sisters, Jesus, like Saul did... <laughs> We would say of that person that he or she is the epitome of evil and should be damned to hell for their actions. With that being said, I'd like to remind us all that nowhere does the glory of God's free and sovereign grace shine more conspicuously than in the unworthiness and unlikeliness of its objects. This has been so beautifully illustrated by James Harvey, the 18th century English clergyman and writer. Listen to what he wrote. It'll be hard to get through it. Where sin has abounded, says the proclamation from the court of heaven, Grace does much more abound. Manasseh was a monster of barbarity, for he caused his own children to pass through the fire and filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Manasseh was an adept, adept in iniquity, for he had not only multiplied and to an extravagant degree his own sacrilegious impieties, but he poisoned the principles and perverted the manners of his subjects, making them do worse than the most detestable of heathen idolaters. Yet, through the, this superabundant grace, he is humbled, he is reformed, 
and becomes a child of forgiving love and heir of immortal glory. Behold that bitter and bloody persecutor, Saul, when breathing out threatenings and bent upon slaughter, he worried the lambs and put to death the disciples of Jesus. The havoc he had committed, the inoffensive families he had already ruined were not sufficient to lessen his vengeful spirit. They were only a taste which, instead of filling the bloodhound, made him more closely pursue the track and more eagerly pant for destruction. He still has a thirst for violence and murder. So eager and insatiable is his thirst that he even breathes out threatenings and murder. His words are spears and arrows and his tongue a sharp sword. It is as natural for him to menace the Christians as to breathe the air. No, they bled every hour in the purposes of his malevolent heart. It is only owing to want of power that every syllable he utters, every breath he draws, does not deal out deaths and cause some of the innocent disciples to fall. Who upon the principles of human judgment would not have pronounced him a vessel of wrath destined to unavoidable damnation? We would say of him that there were heavier chains and a deeper dungeon in the world of woe that must surely be reserved for such an implacable enemy of true godliness. Yet admire and adore the inexhaustible treasures of grace. This Saul is omitted into the goodly fellowship of the prophets, is numbered with the noble arm of martyrs, and makes a distinguished figure among the glorious company of the apostles. The Corinthians were flagitious, even to a proverb some of them wallowing in such abominable vices and habituated themselves to such outrageous acts of injustice as were a reproach, reproach to human nature. Yet even these sons of violence and slaves of sensuality were washed, sanctified, justified washed in the precious blood of a dying redeemer, sanctified by the powerful operations of this blessed spirit, justified through the infinitely tender mercies of a gracious God. Those who were once the burden of the earth are now the joy of heaven, the delight of angels. God saves unsavory characters. I'm so choked up. I'm sorry. He saves unsavory characters, does he not? Manasseh, Saul, Corinthians, me, you. Jesus said, I've come to save the sick. May we remember 
is when we leave this place in a moment and go out into the world. May we pray for those around us. May we gossip the gospel to them. May we show them the love of Christ. And may we remember the words of Jesus. All things are possible with God.